Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. We come to chapter 9 of our continuing reading through the book of Romans. And just to remind us again of the whole package deal of what Paul's trying to do in this letter, he starts with the call to repentance for both the Jew who have the law and the Gentiles who have their God-given consciences. And then the announcement of the free forgiveness of sins through Christ Jesus in the gospel. The gift of baptism into Christ's death and resurrection, Christ who is the new Adam. And then, of course, the daily ongoing struggle of being a Christian and knowing the good we ought to do and yet so often failing to do it. But also the promise of election in Christ Jesus from God by the Spirit. And now we circle back a little bit in Romans chapter 9, and the discussion will continue for a couple more chapters on a historical question that Paul has to address. And the question is, what about Israel? What about the Jews? What about my own people? Paul has to try and make sense of the real estate, the, the people, the cults and the ritual, and ask the question, was it all a sideshow? Was it just a mistake that God eventually abandoned in sending his son? What was God's plan in calling Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then their descendants and bringing them out of slavery in Egypt through Moses and giving them their own land and their own king and their own temple? Paul, in addressing this question, makes a theological move that is still essential for one of the biggest questions that is still asked today amongst us. Is everyone who sits in a pew or on a couch with their Zoom on a Christian? In Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, Paul says, look, the Israelites belong to them the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. So the first move that Paul makes in answering this question, what about Israel, and in being able to extend that answer to our day, who is a real Christian, is to say, let's separate the people, first of all, from the outward marks. The things that marked out Israel as different from every other country are still there, and they still matter. The things that were God's sign upon them, that they were a chosen people, or in the old English we used to say, a peculiar people, were the adoption, the presence of God, the glory, the covenant that God made with them at Sinai, and the law, the worship, the cultic ritual, and the temple, and of course, most importantly, the promises that God still intended to send a seed from Abraham who would deliver not only them, but all of the nations of the earth. There was a similar question that was posed um, rhetorically to Luther back in the day. Actually, it was two still priests of the Pope who came to him and said, there are all these Christians running around saying we all have to be baptized anew, especially if you were baptized as a child. 
we need to be baptized anew as adults. And these two priests wanted to ask Luther, how do we address this problem? Now, Luther has a little bit of fun at their expense at the beginning of his response and says, well, first of all, you're in the wrong church. <laughs> Why are you asking me? I'm the arch heretic. Shouldn't you be going and asking the Pope? And they say, okay, so leaving that aside, Luther said one of the problems with this brand new cult that eventually would become the Mennonites of today is that they forgot that all the gifts of Christ are present even in the most heretical church, even in the medieval church. So Luther wrote to them a pamphlet which is now called On Rebaptism. And in that he says, look, we on our part, the Lutherans, the reformers, confess that there is much that is Christian and good under the papacy. Indeed, everything that is Christian and good is to be found there and has come to us from this source. For instance, we confess that in the papal church there are the true holy scriptures, true baptism, the true sacrament of the altar, the true keys to the forgiveness of sins, the true office of the ministry, the true catechism in the form of the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Articles of the Creed. I contend, this is Luther, that in the papacy there is true Christianity, even the right kind of Christianity, and many great and devoted saints. Didn't mean that Luther didn't have issues with what was being preached from the pulpits of those churches, but Luther is actually saying much the same thing that Paul says about Israel in Romans 9. Outwardly, the church has the marks. The sacraments that are Christ's gift to us, the scriptures in which we have the word of God, the office of the ministry in which the word of God continues to be proclaimed to new peoples and to new generations. The question of the authenticity of God's signs and marks on a people is separate from whether the people themselves can call themselves God's people. So I'm often asked, or if I'm not asked, I ask the question and answer it for people that are joining, let's say, Ascension or another congregation, what makes a good Christian church? I always point out that it's things like this. Does the church proclaim Christ Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins? Does it proclaim the gospel from the Holy Scriptures? Does it offer one baptism for the sign and seal that Jesus' forgiveness rests on a person? Does it celebrate the Lord's Supper, bread and wine, as Christ's own body and blood given to us for the forgiveness of sins? Wherever those things are happening, there is a true church. And one can say that is the people of God. But the people themselves are not what makes the church a true church, but rather the content of what's happening in that space. Unfortunately, most Christians judge a church not based on the marks, not based on whether the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for the sins of the world is being proclaimed there, not based on whether baptism is offered to all from child to adult to elder, not whether the body and blood of Christ are being distributed, but rather on whether they like the people. 
my very first parish, I would often visit people my first year to get to know members of the church and ask, well, how did you end up at this particular congregation? And so often I heard, because the people are nice. So what happens if the people aren't nice? Then do you decide that it's no longer a true church? Or what happens if you go to a church that never preaches Christ, doesn't baptize, and doesn't offer the Lord's Supper, but hey, the people are really friendly? I can find you a bunch, a bunch of really friendly atheists. It doesn't make them a true church. So the joke is told about the Baptist, because we always tell jokes at the poor Baptist expense. This Baptist whose ship sinks and he's the only one left stranded on a deserted island. And because he was off the beaten path for ships, every morning he had a routine. He would get up, he would swim out as far as he could to the channel and see if a ship was coming by. Finally, finally, one morning he sees a ship and the captain sends out sailors to go and get him out of the water and put him in the rowboat. And he says, I'm so glad that you're here. But before you save me, I have a very precious possession back on the island that I want to go and get. And it's my Bible because I'm a devout Christian. The rowers were really impressed by this religious commitment of this Baptist that after all this time he's being rescued, but he still wants his Bible. So they row back all the way to the desert island. And when they get there, they're kind of surprised by what they see. And they ask the man, you've been here by yourself the whole time? He's like, yeah, just me and the scriptures. And they said, well, how is it then that there are three huts on the island? He says, well, it's very simple. The first hut is my home. That's where I sleep and eat and look after all the clothes and stuff I've, stuff I've got to do. The second hut is my church. And they said, well, what's the third hut? He said, oh, that's the church I used to go to. He's by himself. And yet, there's always this tendency in us to judge churches not by the marks, not by whether all the gifts are there, but rather by the people inside. So Israel, Paul says, Israel that has all the outward marks was essential for God to be the vehicle through which the Christ would come. He who is God over all forever blessed. Which leads to the next question. What about the people? What about the people in Israel? And how do we apply that to our day when we ask the question, is everybody who sits in a church pew a Christian? Well, empty participation in the rituals, Paul insists, does not make one a child of Abraham or a child of God. It's not about the hut in this case, second or third, but your trust in the promises being made by the one that you are hearing about in the hut. And so in Romans 9, 6 through 8, Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, Paul argues, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, in case you're tempted to read that as saying, oh, well, that just means as long as you're descended by blood from Isaac, you're okay. It's the people descended from Ishmael that are out. Paul gives a more blunt argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, I do not want you to be aware 
that our forefathers were all under the cloud that led the people out of slavery towards the Red Sea and all passed through the sea when they got there and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ even way back then. Nevertheless, Paul writes, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. He saved them all. He brought them all out of Egypt. They all participated in the baptism into Moses. They all participated in the same drinking from the spiritual rock that is Christ. But not all of them were children of Israel. Even though, from an outward perspective, we might say they were all Israelites. This point is made elsewhere in the Old Testament. So you don't even have to take Paul's word for it. Paul knew that he was quoting from things such as 1 Kings chapter 19 and the account of Elijah, who after he finished with his encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, fled to Mount Horeb and asked God to take his life. Till finally God came, not in a hurricane, not in thunder, not in a violent storm, but in a quiet voice. And Elijah heard it, and he wrapped his cloak, face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Now bear in mind, these are Israelites that are doing this. And I, even I only, am left, Elijah says, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, and he gives him a whole set of instructions that begins, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Then there's further instructions, but at the end the Lord says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Do you get the point? Not all Israel is Israel. In the same way, not everybody who goes to church is a Christian. There's an old joke that goes, going to church makes you a Christian like going to a garage makes you a car. Christianity and our Christianity, our identity as Christians, is not found in the outward marks, but in the inward conviction that Christ has given us these gifts, that Christ himself has died for us, that Christ himself has baptized us, and that Christ himself feeds us with his body and blood. Isn't this in the small catechism what Luther says about the Lord's Supper? Is it a magic wand? Do those who take it have what it says just because they happen to show up? Our catechism says, certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. 
Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. Whoever believes these words, it's offered to everyone, but only those receive it who receive it by faith. And the trick here is we can't see each other's faith. I don't know on a given Sunday morning who in the pews has faith and who doesn't. The outward marks get distributed to everyone who opens their lips and says that they believe Jesus is Lord and who confesses that this church bears the true outward marks. But I can't see with 100% certainty who is and who isn't a Christian, and neither can you. None of us can. We know we're Christians by faith. For having heard the promises of God, we believe them. Now, there's some important conclusions we can draw from all this. First of all, Israel, the people of God, from the very beginning has always been two things. The thing you see and the people that make up the thing. The Israel that we see now in the year 2020 on the map is really not the church. It's a piece of real estate much like Ghana or China or Australia. It has a flag, it has a parliament, but it's not the people of God. The visible Israel of God is the church that proclaims Christ and gives his gifts. And the true Israelites are those who acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, who acknowledge that the promise that God made to Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed God has fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. True Israelites are those who trust in him, the God of Abraham, the one who is fulfilling the promises made to Abraham. The second conclusion we can take away is what our attitude toward those, whether Jew or Gentile, who do not see Jesus as Messiah ought to be. And it comes in Paul's own words at the beginning of the chapter. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's attitude isn't, you know, I just can't wait for God to strike them down. Paul's attitude isn't, well, God's really going to judge them in the end, isn't he? Paul's attitude is compassion, to be torn up inside and desire that his own people have the gift that he has received of faith in Christ. That alone is the attitude that can drive authentic mission. Not a desire to somehow notch up little marks on the side of the Bible and say, I saved X number of people, look how great a person I am. Not a desire to go out and say, God, look, we made sure that they knew that they were going to get theirs in the end. But an attitude that looks at anyone who does not yet know Christ as their Savior, that has compassion. An attitude that says, I want them to have what I have been given. That we want our people to also be Christ's people. Jesus in our gospel reading fed 
all 5,000 men plus women and children that were there to hear him preach. He didn't do a test. He didn't say, now do you believe all of this that I've taught you? Do you agree with all of it? Are you ready to be confirmed? You're going to be baptized? He fed them all, regardless. And so we bring the gospel to all, regardless. We don't ask ourselves, is this person likely to believe in Jesus or less likely to believe in Jesus? Is this person worthy to hear the gospel? We've been studying the book of Jonah on Thursdays. We know what the answer is. We proclaim, even in Nineveh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all people might be saved. The church's message is what we heard from Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's a bargain. Behold, I made him my servant, I made Jesus a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Ultimately, what makes Israel Israel and Israelites Israelites, what makes a church Christian and what makes people Christians is God, in Christ, by the Spirit. Amen. And now may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you all in the one true faith unto life everlasting. Amen.